have your Bibles, please open to 1 John chapter 2. Today we're going to look at the first six verses of 1 John chapter 2. If you are able, I ask you to stand and honor the reading of God's holy word. This is 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, this is your word. It is true in all that it says and teaches, the only rule for faith and practice. Infallible and inerrant it is. Open our hearts, open our minds to receive it, that we might see you clearly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it was about two years ago that I received my notice in the mail from Lincoln County. And you know what the notice was for? Jury duty. I got summons to jury duty. Yes, I was summons to appear at the Lincoln County Courthouse at 8.30 a.m. one Monday morning in early December to do my civil duty to society because I was a citizen in good standing in Lincoln County North Carolina. You ever been on jury duty? Let me see your hand. Okay. Now, that week, I knew it was going to be a long week, and I knew I might make it to the jury, but when I got there that week, I never made it on the jury, but I sat there long enough to observe everything that was going on in the courthouse and seeing as many hands as I saw raised. Maybe you can think back to that day. Maybe you were even on the jury to who were the characters in the courtroom that day. Because I did stop and notice what was going on. I looked and I saw the clerk taking notes. I looked and I saw the sergeant at arms ready to act. I looked on one side of the courtroom and I saw the plaintiff and I saw his counselor, the prosecuting attorney. I looked in the middle of the courtroom and there he sat the judge in his pristine attire. And on the other side of the courtroom, I saw the defendant. And I looked and I saw the defendant's counselor, the defense attorney. And I took special note of the defense attorney because at that moment when I saw the defense attorney, I started thinking back of the the court scenes that I've watched on TV, and maybe you've watched them as well, that over the years we have watched defendant after defendant pay a lot of money, right, to get a good defense attorney. We've seen it over and over, people paying hundreds, thousands, and thousands of dollars to get a good defense 
attorney. Well, why do people do that? It's because defense attorneys are prized possessions, aren't they? Every defendant wants a good defense attorney, and people are ready, they're willing to do whatever it takes to pay the money if they know they have a good defense. Brothers and sisters, I mentioned this today about the courtroom because we, we examined this text today from 1 John chapter 2, 1 through 6. John invites us to come inside what I'm going to call the divine courtroom of God. You see, just as I observed the people of Lincoln County in that courtroom, I want to invite you to join me today and all of us to see the folks who are in the divine courtroom of God. I want you to see the one who is the accuser, the prosecutor. I want you to see who the judge is. I want you to see who the defendant is. But most importantly, I want you to see the defense attorney. I want you to see the divine counselor, what this text calls the advocate. And it's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the greatest defense attorney that anyone could ever have. So as we examine this text today, these first six verses, I want you to know that it breaks down into three parts. And here's the way we're going to look at this text. First of all, I want you to see all the characters in the divine courtroom of God. Secondly, I want you to see the propitiation for the people. It's hard to say. Say that three times. The propitiation for the people. And then lastly, the test for truth. So the characters of the courtroom, the propitiation for the people, and then finally, the test for truth. Look back with me at verse 1 as we examine some of the characters in the courtroom. The Bible says, My little children... I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You know, not only looking at this text, but as we look at other texts throughout the totality of Scripture, the Bible teaches us about the different characters in the divine courtroom of God. The first character we even see in Scripture is the judge. The Bible says God is the judge in the divine courtroom of God. Did you know that Genesis 18 calls God the judge of all the earth? And he's going to be a judge that always does right. In Psalm 7, it says that God is a righteous judge. And the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 says that God is is the judge of all. So the Lord is in the middle. He is the judge in the courtroom. But over on this side, the Scripture teaches us who the prosecuting attorney is. Who's the accuser? The Word of God teaches us that that is actually Satan. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1 says that Satan is standing ready to testify and to accuse the man of God. Revelation 12 says that Satan is the accuser of the brothers. And we all remember Job chapter 1, don't we? Here's what that says. Satan stood ready to accuse Job when he said this. He said to the Lord, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? 
You've blessed him, God, with the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he'll curse you to your face. Satan was ready to accuse Job before the Lord. So Satan is their accuser. But the Bible also speaks about who the defendant is. And beloved, the Bible says that the defendant is every person who has ever lived. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says this, It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. That every person who has ever lived is going to be on trial. And brothers and sisters, for you and for me, that's just not good news. Because we know what the Bible says about our situation. Think about being in a courtroom, being a defendant. And you're, 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 if you're the defendant, you're wondering, how am I going to look to the judge? How am I going to look to the courtroom? And in this situation, you recognize that the judge knows everything about you. And here's what the judge has said about you in his word. He said that there is none righteous, no, not even one. He has said, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In the book of James, he says, if you keep most of the law, but you fall in just one little part of it, guess what? You're guilty of breaking the whole thing. He has said in his word that the wages of sin is death. That's terrible news for a defendant. But that's the situation we find ourselves in as the defendant. Well, someone might say, well, okay, I see that situation. As a defendant, I'm going to try to make my case before the Almighty Judge. I'm going to say, Judge, I look, I know that I'm guilty. But Judge, let me take the very best of what I've done in my life. Let me kind of cut out the bad and remove that. And I'll, I'll, I'll take what is good and I'll offer it to you, Judge. And the Judge of all the earth says, Don't you remember what I said in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6? Even your very best. Your righteous acts are like dirty rags in my sight. So we as the sinners say, okay, I I, I get that. God, I'll try to clean my own life up. Let me get some soap and water. I'll wash myself. I'll clean myself up mentally, emotionally, spiritually. I'll try to go to church more, be good to my neighbor more. I'll try to wash my life up. Then would it be good to you, judge? And God, the judge, would look at us and say, Don't you remember what I said to you in Jeremiah 2.22? Though you wash yourself with soda, though you use an abundance of soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me. That's what the Lord God declares. That's the situation we find ourselves in, beloved. This is very bad news because left to ourselves, there is not anything we can do to bring hope in the divine courtroom of God. But there's good news today. And this good news is found in the latter part of verse 1. Look at it one more time. It says this, the latter part. But if anyone does sin, hey, that's me. How about you? If anyone does sin, what does it say? We have an advocate. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Beloved, this text preaches It says we have a holy counselor. We have a divine defense attorney, and his name is Jesus Christ. The Bible calls him the righteous. And the scriptures teach us that Jesus Christ 
is the best possible defense attorney. He's the best counselor, the best advocate that anyone could ever, ever have. Why is that? Well, as this text, this text says, he's perfect. He's righteous. He's never done anything wrong. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being in trouble and going to court and getting a defense attorney that has never done anything wrong? that has never said anything wrong. That's who Jesus is. He's perfect. He's righteous. I want to give you three verses in the Bible that teach you that. You ready? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that Jesus is perfect. It says that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21. The second one is Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. It says that Jesus was tempted like us in every respect, yet he did it without sin. And the third one's found in this epistle. If you turn over one chapter, look at chapter 3, verse 5. It says in that verse, in him there is no sin. Imagine that. Finding a defense attorney that has never, ever messed up. That's what makes him the greatest defense attorney that you could ever have. Let me tell you what else makes him that way. He has flesh and blood. He embraced our humanity. He's our brother. Eric read a scripture just a moment ago that talked about the fact that Jesus was made like us in every respect. He knows what it's like to be a man. He understands the frailty of our existence. But thirdly, he's also God, isn't he? That means that Christ's actions as your defense attorney are God's actions as your defense attorney. Did you hear that? Christ's actions towards you are the same as God's actions towards you. They have eternal value. So what is amazing about this, beloved, is that in the midst of this court case, in the midst of us as a defendant trying to argue our case to a judge who knows everything about us, who will not accept anything that is imperfect, in the midst of that courtroom, The Bible says we have an advocate. We have a defense attorney. And what does he do? He runs up to his father and says, Oh, Father, I'm their defense attorney. Let me speak on their behalf. And here's what Jesus says. He says, Father, I do not claim that my clients are innocent. In fact, let me affirm their guilt. They are guilty. They have fallen short of your glory. But, Father, I was sent to fully represent these clients of mine. Without losing my divinity, Father, you know I embrace their humanity. I was the Word made flesh. And Father, you know I came to satisfy your righteous requirement. God, your righteous requirement is perfection. In the Sermon on the Mount, I told these folks, be perfect just as your Father in heaven's perfect. But guess what, Father? I knew they couldn't do it on their own. That's why I came and I decided to do it for them. I decided to represent them before you. That is why I am called Jesus Christ, the righteous. I'm perfect. I did something that they could never do on their own. Father, I'm that Old Testament lamb that has no spot and no blemish. Oh, judge, oh, Father, you know that I was sent to shed my blood on their behalf. Oh, Father, you illustrated this in the Old Testament. You remember when that high priest would come into the Holy of Holies and he'd have the blood of the bulls and the goats in his hands. 
and he would sprinkle it down on the mercy seat and, and, and judge your glory would manifest itself above the seat and below it would be your law in the ark and the blood went between. Father, that was a picture of the shedding of blood because, Father, you said in your word, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. But, Father, I understand that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. That's why I came as the perfect, spotless Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. And, Father, I went to the cross on their behalf, and I took the nails in my hands and in my feet, and my blood was shed for the remission of their sins. Oh, Father, see the work that I have done on their behalf, that they would be forgiven. I did this, Father, because I'm their defense attorney. I'm their advocate. I did this to satisfy divine justice, that these clients might be reconciled to you. And in doing this, Father, I became the propitiation for their sins. That's the second point I want you to see. Look at verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation, what does that even mean? We're going to hash that out in just a second. But the first thing I want you to know is that propitiation has everything to do with the wrath of God. Now, I mentioned that phrase in a church, didn't I? Let me tell you, that phrase, wrath of God, it's not accepted in many churches even today. That's a shame because the Bible teaches it. There's this understanding, this false teaching out there that the Old Testament was wrath of God. The New Testament is love of Jesus Christ. And those are two completely different things. That when Jesus came on the scene, God's wrath just disappeared. It was swept under the rug, never to be seen again. That now there's just love. I couldn't be further from the truth. Let me tell you why. Here's what Jesus says about it. This is John chapter 3, verse 36. Jesus says this. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But what? The wrath of God remains on him. God is completely righteous. And the Bible teaches us that his righteousness demands wrath. So what does propitiation mean? And what does it have to do with wrath? Again, let's stop. Take a step back. Because we've got to see the characters in the room one more time. God is in the middle. God is the righteous judge. He is holy. He is blameless. And he cannot look upon sin in the least of allowance. Yet on this side, we have the sinner. And the sinner, like you and like me, is separated from God because of sin. And we can't get it off, we can't wash it off, we can't offer our best. So what does that mean? That means that God's wrath is aimed towards the sinner. Do you see that? And that is a terrible place to be. It is a hopeless place to be. That sinner can do nothing to get rid of that sin, and the wrath of God is aimed for him. But in the midst of that scene, the sinners are here. In steps the Savior. And the Savior says... I'm going to do what they couldn't do. I'm going to come to earth without losing my divinity and become a man. 
and I'm going to live a life that is perfect. These people deal with sin. I'm going to be sinless. And not only that, I'm going to go to the cross and the wrath of God that is aimed at these people. I'm going to take it on me. Heavenly Father, my God, Jesus says, turn that wrath from the sinners and put it on me as their Savior and let me quench the wrath of God for them. And that's what propitiation means. Are you ready? Propitiation is the objective, turning away of sin from the sinner to the Savior, where the Savior satisfies the divine wrath of God and the justice of God forever. He quenches the wrath of God for you and for me. Let me say that one more time. Propitiation is the turning away of the wrath of God from the sinner to the Savior, where the Savior quenches the wrath of God and satisfies divine justice forever. It's not that wrath disappeared. It's not that God swept it under the rug. It's that he turned it from the sinner to the Savior. That's what propitiation means. That, beloved, is what Jesus did for you and for me. Yes, all we like sheep have gone astray. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. I want to read to you a story real quick. This is a short little story from Dr. Doug Kelly's book on prayer. It's a story about one of the soldiers who had served under Stonewall Jackson. Here's what Dr. Kelly says. He says, Stonewall Jackson was accidentally shot by one of his own troops in 1863. His body was laid in the Capitol in Richmond for two days before his funeral at his home Presbyterian Church in Lexington. Tens of thousands of mourning people crowded into the Capitol building during those short two days to look upon their beloved slain leader for the very last time. As the sun was setting on the last day of viewing, the marshal gave orders for the great doors of the Senate chamber to be closed. That means that hundreds of sad people would be excluded from paying their last tribute. But just before the gates finally shut, a rough-looking veteran in tattered uniform pushed and, and shoved his way forward Tears running down his bearded cheeks. The marshal in charge was about to push this insistent old man back down the steps. But suddenly he lifted up his right arm and it was only a stump. And he cried out, by this right arm which I gave for my country, I demand the right of seeing my general one more time. And the governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia happened to be standing nearby, and he ordered the marshal to let the old veteran in with these words. Listen to this. This veteran has one entrance by his wounds. He has one entrance by his wounds. Beloved, if you are here today and you know the Lord Jesus Christ in a somewhat similar yet infinitely more wonderful way, 
Believers in Jesus win entrance to the Father's favorable presence by the way of the wounds of the Savior received in Christ's victorious struggle on Calvary's cross. Yes, Christ is your advocate. Yes, Christ is your propitiation. The wrath of God was turned from you and put on Jesus. Praise be to God. And now John shifts gears for this one final point. He shifts gears from the work of Jesus, our advocate, to a test of knowing him. Look with me at these final verses, what we call the test for truth. Look at verses 3 through 6 one more time. The Bible says, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we know, by this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Do you remember the words of Jesus to his disciples in John 14? He said this. He said, if you love me, you'll what? You'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The Bible says if we know Jesus, there will be a change in our lives. My old Baptist youth pastor used to say this, no change, no Jesus. He was right. When you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, there will be a change. In fact, the Bible calls it a transformation of your heart and your mind. There will be a change. There will be a desire to obey Jesus. So if we don't obey Jesus, if you're living in disobedience to him, the Bible says, this text says, you need to take a hard look at your life because you might be lying. Remember what chapter 1, verse 6 says. Jump back to that one for a second. It says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So if you say one thing and you live another, the Bible says, that's proof in your life that you might not know the Lord. You need to examine that. You know, the Bible says you can fool people. You can trick people. Jesus talked about it. You remember the parable of the sower and the seed? God walks out, tossing the seed. Hits on all different kinds of ground, doesn't it? Hits on the hard ground. The birds come and take it away. It's the hard heart, Jesus says, and Satan comes and plucks it away. Sometimes it lands on thorny ground. It tries to grow, but the, but the thorns wrap around it and choke it. Jesus says that, that's, that's living your life with a love for money, a love for the things of the world, and that the love of the world, the love of money wraps around you like those thorns and keeps you from coming to Jesus. But do you remember the rocky ground? Because this is the scariest one, I think. The rocky ground. The Bible says the seed goes in. What happens? It immediately shoots up, right? You see, you see something there. There's the appearance of life. But then the sun comes out, Jesus says, and this thing that shot up gets blown away very easily. Why, Jesus says, because it had no root. What that teaches us is that within Christianity, there can be an appearance of life. But as time goes on, life comes about, the sun comes out, the wind blows, 
it blows away because it never had root. I think, Jesus, I think John's talking about people like that, people that have an appearance, maybe a profession of faith, but no life to back it up. John says it this way, if you say you have faith, you will have works because faith without works is dead. So this text says, how should we walk? We should walk as Jesus walked. Verse 6 says, whoever abides, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Well, what, what was that? How did Jesus walk? Well, Jesus tells us how he walked. Jesus said that he came to do the will of his Father. The will of the one who sent him. Jesus said in John 14, so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly what the Father commanded me to do. And in other words, Jesus lived a life of obedience. Jesus lived a life of faithfulness. He says, yes, that is one of the tests to see if we truly know him, is if we obey him. If you love me, Jesus said, you will keep my commandments. Beloved, as we close today, isn't this a great text, by the way? I mean, come on, Jesus is your advocate, right? Is he? Because that's my question. Is Jesus your advocate? Because let me tell you something one day. You're going to find yourself standing in a divine courtroom. And there's going to be God on the throne. Who's going to plead your case? Is it you? If, you're to, if you are here today without the Lord Jesus Christ, let me ask you a question. Do you want to be in that situation? Guess what? You don't have to be. Today's the day of salvation. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You can have the greatest divine defense attorney that has ever lived. And let me tell you something about that attorney. He's never lost a case. And he never will. Jesus wins. Is he your advocate? Do you know that he is your propitiation? Do you know that the wrath of God is aimed right at you? But you don't have to stay there because God turned his wrath to his son, the one who was running up to his father and says, I will plead your case. Christ took that wrath. He died with it and rose without it. And said, I will defeat your enemies for you. I will be your advocate. If you're here today without Jesus, go to him in prayer, confessing your sin to him, embracing him as your Savior and your Lord, and run after him all of your days. And he will save you. And then finally, are we obeying God? Do we have a life of obedience? There was a poster on my church wall growing up in my old Baptist church that asked this question. It said, if someone accused you of being a Christian, is there enough evidence in your life to prove it? Does the fruit match the root? Jesus is calling us to a life of obedience. We are to walk as Jesus walked, humbly, faithfully, obediently. May God give us the grace to live that way. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. Lord Jesus, you are the divine defense attorney, the advocate, the one who rushes to the Father, pleading our case. And not only do you plead our case, but you took the wrath that we deserved and you conquered it. You defeated it. 
And if there is one here today who does not know Jesus, who's standing to defend himself before a holy judge, do a work in that one's heart today that they might receive you by grace through faith, that they would have you as their advocate, you as their propitiation for sins. And God, for Christians here today, there might, or there, there might be some in this room, Father, who are acting like that, that plant that shot up out of rocky ground. They might be saying, I, I know this, but they're living that. It's going to take a hard, hard, hard look at their lives under the preaching of this text today to see if they really know you and do a work in that one's heart as well. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.